apologising for like dog. <laughs> and a new Irish record for Phil Healy, 22.99. Christy Cooney hands over the Sam McGuire Cup to Graham Canty, Cork All-Ireland Champions for the seventh time ever. Hello and welcome to the Star Sport Podcast. My name is Jack McCarran of the Southern Star and I'm joined, as always, by Star Sport Editor, Kieran McCarthy. Before we kick things off, I'd just like to give a gentle reminder to our listeners and viewers to please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. The European Cross Country Championships Take place in Dublin this Sunday and one of West Cork's top athletes is set to feature. Glenn Garris, Dara McElhenney, who heads to Sunday's championships off the back of an impressive silver medal at the recent National Seniors, will take his chance in the under-23 8,000 metre event. And on today's show, we'll chat to Dara about Sunday's race, his recent successes and his ups and downs from the past year. We're also going to be joined by Fintan O'Toole, author of the brilliant Myler, a family memoir, which documents the sporting careers of father and son, John and David Myler. But Kieran, first, I just wanted to check in with you to make sure you've managed to weather Storm Barra. We've been trying to record this podcast for the bones of two hours now, but your power just keeps going. Do you need me to send any supplies down? Do you have enough toilet paper or is there enough sliced pan in the press to get you through the next few days? Send a few selection boxes, I think. Could be time we just time a year or so, pop a couple of Cadbury selection boxes into the into the post. But even even the post are not working today. That's that's how 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 bad the weather is. So it's just touch wood, we'll get through this this um this attempted recording of the podcast unscathed. So yeah, Star um Storm Barra is is doing what she does. She's um she's messing with the podcast, and that's not on, Jack. That's just not on. Absolutely. Well, let's not waste any time because while we're both up and running, we'll throw to our first interview, which is with one of our favourite guests, Kieran. It's Dara McElhenney, who we'd had on numerous times, and he never fails to inspire me to head out and live my best life. So you caught up with Dara ahead of Sunday's championships. Give us a brief introduction here, but I mean brief because, you know, uh, Storm Barrett waits for no man. But how is Dara keeping, and what sort of form is he in heading into Sunday's big race? And even though Dara McElhinney is fast, I don't think he outpaced Stormbarrow. Look at some of the guests on Sherkinen and Fasted today. But before I talk about Dara, quick word on another West Cork athlete, Jane Buckley. She's an 18-year-old from Newcastle who's also running at the European Cross Countries this weekend. She's picked on the Ireland women's under-20 team. She's after a super year. She won the Autumn Open in October and won the women's under-20 um, event at the recent National Cross Countries. So her first time representing Ireland this Sunday and her first time at a major international championship so the very best to look to Jane Buckley there so on Dara like you said um Jack he's a friend of the show he's an incredible athlete he just turned 21 in November like this this man has been around for years and he's still so so young um so I had a good catch up with him ahead of the the, the big event in Abbottstown on on Sunday he hopes a hometown advantage will help him in the race he knows this Abbottstown course so well he won the autumn open there back in November as well so I'm going to cut straight to it because Dara gets thrown off a lot there so sit back and enjoy Dara McElhinney it's always a pleasure to have Darren McElhinney on the podcast and, we're, and he's joining us again now ahead of a, 
the European Cross Country, which is on in Dublin this weekend. But before we chat about that, um, happy belated birthday, Dara. You turned 21 last month, so I presume now you're feeling older and wiser all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, it's weird now, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, I think you've alluded to a couple of times in your articles, but the days of kind of being up and coming maybe are over now, 21. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it is weird, I suppose, because I'm very much a senior athlete now, but obviously I'm racing under 23 next weekend. But, um, yeah, I think I've it's kind of been the way the last couple of years, but I suppose um, kind of, I suppose, up until maybe, on, up until now or whatever, any kind of time or achievement that you haven't, you kind of put a little asterisk next to it because you're a junior and it's worth a little bit more. Whereas I think I've kind of found out the hard way now the last couple of years that um once you're out of the junior, the junior ranks, it's a it's a level playing field. So it's about I suppose kind of leveling up and trying to get on everybody else's level, even you know, like the 25, 6, 7, 8 year olds of of the continents and stuff like that. But um yeah, no, training's going well and everything anyway. So I'm happy days. Um, obviously, now you've been you at senior the, the last couple of years, and you, you did a great win at the national championships last year. Do you, do, you, do you kind of feel you're finding your feet at senior level now? Even though, like you did, you did brilliant. You could say kind of junior career, but up, up at senior, up up at the big boys, like you said, there the 26, 27, 28, 29 um, year olds. But you feel now, like 21, couple of seasons at senior under your belt, that you're that you are finding your feet. Yeah, I think so. To be fair, um, and it probably didn't. <clears throat> I think actually the year. COVID probably helped as well to a degree because um because obviously like the like the European Championships that are, are on next weekend were supposed to be in Dublin last year um and from a very selfish point of view like I was kind of delighted when they got pushed out because I was first year under twenty three um which is probably like probably the hardest it's probably the hardest race to run at, at Eurocross if you're under twenty three in your first year um because like you know there's so much depth in the junior race anyway and then next thing you're out of it and you're you know you've guys are two years older than you whatever but yeah like the last I suppose yes yeah, so the last two years really where I'm kind of competing at senior and um, picking up the silver medal in the cross country the last day means now that I have a gold silver and bronze from from uh, from like kind of senior national championships and stuff um, but it like it is way more demanding you know like you kind of don't get away with being maybe not on your game 100% which I probably learned like this summer I suppose especially like when I came forth in the in the 1500 at the national championship like I don't think it was like my best performance but I also think the level of performance I brought that day had I brought that to a junior championships in the last you know three or four years previous I probably still would have came out with a gold medal and you know even if your performance isn't uh you know wasn't to your top level you kind of get away with it whereas I think yeah as I say I've kind of learned the learned the hard way that that's not the case in the senior and if you're if you're not on 100 you, you do get found out a lot more than in the in the junior ranks and I presume too, and you've alluded to it before, like your your training load has probably gone up a fair bit in the last couple of months, even even the past twelve months. Yeah, it has. To be fair, I think um, yeah, I think especially probably the last year or so, um, because I think I think I suppose the way it was broken up, kind of say this time two years ago, I was you know just after moving up to Dublin for for university, and I was getting used to that or whatever, and then from yeah so, so I suppose then from that March onwards then obviously we were in lockdown and I was obviously training a lot then but then when it came back I think I realized that yeah like my hours were up my mileage is up um and the intensity is probably up a little bit as well um kind of yeah like you know like this especially this block now since August um coming into the cross country they've been they've been good honest weeks like you know what I mean they've all been they've all been pretty pretty hard like pretty challenging and um strenuous enough but I suppose yeah, for somebody 
coming from junior senior you kind of need to you need to be kind of on the threshold you know what I mean you can't really afford to be doing too much or too little um, and I think I've kind of found that balance the last last couple of months or so and it's been good. In those last couple of months so what does a usual training week look like? Um, so I suppose, like in terms of kind of structure and stuff it'll be similar enough to what I've always done but um, I suppose like if I was to quickly run through Monday to Sunday um, so I don't have a rest day anymore that was one thing that's changed I used to always take one day completely off a week um, whereas now I kind of take one off maybe once every three weeks um, most of the time coming into a race so if I had a race uh, say on the Sunday I'd take the Friday off before it um, so yeah so I suppose yeah if I uh, run through it quickly like uh, Monday I'd do eight miles in the morning um, and five miles in the evening with strides after the five mile run in the evening um, Tuesday do four miles in the morning and then a workout in the evening. So Tuesday, Tuesday evenings and Saturday mornings are kind of two hard, really hard kind of runs or whatever. So like that could be something like, you know, six by six minute intervals or like eight by four minute intervals or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and then Wednesday and Thursday. So when I substituted out my rest day, I kind of wanted to still make sure that I was like letting the, you know, giving my body a chance to recover. So I run eight miles on a Wednesday morning and then take Wednesday night and Thursday morning off and then run again Thursday night as an eight miles. So I'm still actually getting over 24 hours recovery in that period. Um, well, I actually I go to the gym on the Thursday morning, but in terms of just running, um, you know, there's over 20, 24 hours off, which I think still kind of lets the body um, recover as it is. So yeah, that's, yeah, so gym, Thursday morning, run eight miles Thursday night, and then Friday is the same as Monday, so eight miles in the morning, and then five miles in strides in the evening. And then Saturday would be another kind of hard workout in the morning, usually something like, similar enough to, I suppose, what it could be, or is, or is something like what we kind of do more so on a Saturday, I suppose, because, you know, people are training, are off work and we're all off university and stuff, like, kind of maybe trying to, like, take in, take in the kind of more, like, unique places we have on our doorstep. So up here, like, um, you know, some listeners might, might have heard, like, Ticknock Mountain and stuff like that. So, like, often enough, we'll go and kind of, like, shape work out around, around somewhere like that, or else we might just, you know, go, what we've done a few times this year is go to the cross-country course, where the Europeans are going to be held um, and kind of do like race simulation workouts there. But same thing as a Tuesday night, like between the warm up, the bulk of the session and the warm down, you're usually covering anywhere between kind of 13 and 15 miles and then four miles in the evening on a Saturday. And then Sunday is long run day. So anywhere between 16 and 18 miles and then gym in the evening. Um, so it, it definitely has stepped up. Um, but I think, I think what we kind of learned a little bit from lockdown as well, because during lockdown, there was no real structure to like study and stuff. I was kind of doing my running when it suited me and then studying in between times. And I think what I've kind of tried to do then this semester is when I was like picking my modules and stuff is I kind of know that that's, that's what's kind of working for me at the moment. Like I alluded to Wednesday morning and Thursday night and having that. So kind of making sure I'm recovering as much as I can in between the two of those, even if it is like study wise and stuff, kind of trying to keep that time kind of free and stuff like that. So um, it definitely has stepped up, but at the same time, I think, I suppose what I'm trying to say is like, it kind of, it still feels the same to me as it always has, you know what I mean? It's like, I suppose as you get older, your body just becomes more tolerant of it. Like, I mean, my body's probably just as tired now at the end of the week as it was after running, you know, 40 miles in a week when I was 15 or 16. So um, I suppose, and that's the challenge really, is to just kind of keep that, as I said earlier, you need to kind of stay on the threshold and just keep that going as you, as you develop, I suppose. Obviously, all, all that training is, is paying off. Like you've had some really solid results the last couple of months. But before we talk about the the, the cross country, I just want to take you 
back to July and when you became the eighth Corkman ever to break the four minute mile, I think you ran, it was a three minutes, 58.2 seconds in a, in a race in Wimbledon. Can you explain to me and the listeners the importance of breaking the four minute mile and what it means to you? Yeah, it was actually, it was, it was brilliant to be fair. That was, that was a really nice, it was my last race of the season as well. So it was actually, it was a really cool way to finish it off. Um, but yeah, like, I suppose, yeah, like four minute mile is very prestigious and uh, it's, it's, kind of funny because I think like um I've probably had better performances in different distances and like like 1500 is you know obviously it's only 100 meters less than a mile so and it's kind of more commonly around distance and like the week previous or the Saturday previous I ran on the I broke four on a Wednesday night and on the Saturday night previous I'd ran 342.1 which equates I think to like a 359.6 mile or something like that but it's like because it's not actually breaking four for the mile there's not the same kind of like hype around it or whatever. Um, but at the same time, as much as, you know, like maybe physiologically it's the same as, you know, as I say, running like 342 or 341 for 1500, there definitely is something different about when you actually do it. Because on the same night that I ran 342, there was a mile race. It was a British Miners Club meet in um, in Loughborough. And uh, there was there was a mile race on like just previous. And like, there was probably about five lads in the race that you would have expected to break four, but like one lad ran three fifty eight, and then the next four all ran four flat point something. And I remember just kind of watching that race. Obviously, I knew I was running the mile, um, kind of four or five nights later. And I kind of remember watching that and being like, "Yeah, like I know I'm definitely in shape to break four, but at the same time, I think that was the perfect kind of nudge to say that unless you go out and execute it, it's very it can very easily slip away from you. And even on the night, I mean, everything went fairly perfectly probably the most kind of smooth ride of a race I've ever had in terms of like um it was like quite evenly paced and like I didn't have my like stride chopped by anybody like cutting across or anything like that it was really smooth the whole way and even at that I only you know broke it by by like you know under two seconds or whatever but it was it was brilliant like and there actually was a nice bit of excitement around it and even now like some people like you know I'm chatting about running they'll they'll know that I've broken four minutes for the mile even though like you know I would argue like my 3000 meter time is much more impressive than 358 mile but at the same time it doesn't have the same clout I suppose um but no it was great and as you said I think it was the eighth Cork man to do it and maybe the first West Cork man might have to check that but I think I seen the list and they were all leaving and um I think anyway so yeah there's things like that then as well which make it a bit more special as well Oh, like, like you're, you're right there. It's the prestige of it. Like when you're thinking about the four minute mile over the years, like there's a there's a certain certain honor to to breaking it. So you're in elite company there. And I just want to fast forward from there now to, to the present and with the European cross countries um coming up this weekend. Um going from the track to cross country course, how do you handle that? Um it, it definitely is a challenge every year, and I think um what probably made it a little bit easier this year was having the incentives that the Europeans are on in Ireland. Um, like I've run really poorly over cross country the last couple of years. Um, it was kind of triggering like a reoccurring injury in my back um, where my back kind of used to like seize on like the kind of uneven ground. And like, um, I like, you know, I obviously, I, this is going back now, like two, three, four years. And I went and like, you know, seen a specialist about it and eventually got it sorted anyway. Um, but yeah, like I think it is tough because you know the track is a lot more glamorous and it's a lot like, you know, to put it like it's a lot easier. Like it is because there's on the track, if you like, especially if you're running the shorter distances like the fifteen hundred a mile. Like I alluded to running, you know, 
1500 meter race on the Saturday and then breaking forward for the mile on the Wednesday. And like, had there been another race the following Saturday, I still would have been able to perform well. Whereas cross country is very like you have one shot every like four weeks. And if you're not, if you don't run well, you're, you know, you've another four weeks to kind of go back and try and try and make it right. So it is, it is more difficult in ways, but I think this year, because it was on in Ireland, I called my season quite early on the track. So that race that I broke four in was my last race, which was like, that was like mid July or no late July. I think it was like the 25th of July or something like that. Um, so that was quite early because like the track races keep going on all the way through August and September. So what I did was I put the season and then took like a week off um, then got back training for like 10 days or so. And then I went on a three week altitude camp um, up in San Moritz in Switzerland with my girlfriend. Um, and like that definitely helped because I came straight from there to, to UCD. And I think like having that kind of three weeks of like really good routine and like good base fitness from the altitude and like the environment up there kind of meant that I came into UCD and pretty seamlessly I was I was fit like and I was kind of ready to start hitting the training hard and it's been a really good like it's definitely been my best ever block of training um from from that altitude camp to now because I just I suppose what people do a lot of the time is you know you train for a few weeks and then you kind of go to altitude and come down and race um whereas I kind of did it the other way around where I did the altitude at the start which really as I say it just kind of got my body right and got me motoring and then like I really pushed on the next couple of weeks um but like we're kind of lucky here like it's it's easy it's it's good like being in Dublin because like we have um or in UC we've got like the the main like sports uh like the main pitches uh at the sports campus or whatever like you know we've got like a 1500 meter loop around that so I I'm training on grass probably like I'm doing my both my hard workouts every week on grass um which is like you know it's good and bad like it's it's good because it like it kind of takes a lot of the impact off your body and stuff and you your legs wouldn't be as beat up but it's also like kind of humbling sometimes because you don't see the same splits that you'd see on the road you know especially like with the, the new era of like super shoes and stuff like they don't work on grass so like um say if i was to do six by a mile on a lovely you know brand new tarmac road in, in a lovely pair of, like you know my new adidas super shoes or something like that like i could be you know throwing out 440 miles or something for fun whereas you go onto the grass and there's it's a lot more honest like it's you know and when there's a bit of rain, it's obviously it's slippy and it's mucky and stuff. But it's been good, honest work really since September. Um, I had a couple of races thrown in there as well to to push me on. They've all went really well. Um, and it's yeah, it's, it's been great. Like, and I think as well, luckily, like, my coach kind of loves cross country anyway. Like he like he's an athlete himself and a, a, a good cross country runner. So I think like he he kind of he enjoys his time here and that kind of rubs off on us, I suppose as well. You know he sees like you know the national cross country championships as one of the biggest days of the year and I think that kind of excitement around it definitely has kind of rubbed off on on all of us training underneath him um and it has been a really good block in fairness. What characteristics so there does a good cross country runner need compared to a good good track runner because like you said there cross country it could be wet day slippy mucky kind of like you need character and heart because it, it is it's 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 a tough course it's a tough slog it's energy sapping so do you almost need to dig deeper when it's cross country? Um, yeah, oh, you definitely do. Like, I think as well, like, you don't have the same kind of, I suppose, like the same kind of markers as you do on the track. Like, you're coming, if you're doing a five k on the track, and you have an idea of what time you want to run, like, you know what you should be hitting every two hundred meters, and you know there's clocks every two hundred meters. It's very kind of, it's a very controlled environment, and then obviously even more so when it's on an indoor track. Um, 
Whereas, like, I mean, yeah, like, the outdoor, they're, like, the cross-country now is, like, you know, I suppose it's a little bit different this year because all the races have been in Ireland, but other years, you're, you know, you're racing in Ireland, you could be racing on, you know, pure muck, um, you know, hills, everything. And then, like, in 2016, for instance, like, when I raced uh, my first European championships, that was, it was, like, a pretty bad winter here weather-wise. I remember our cross-country trials being, like, really mucky and slow and everything, and then, I hopped on a plane and the European Championships were on in Sardinia in 23 degree heat and you know it's kind of it is it's just not as controlled an environment and then in terms of the actual race itself I think the things you said in terms of like having the kind of heart and desire do come into a little bit more because in a in a track race that goes right over 5k like you should really get to like 3000 meters feeling quite comfortable you know like you know you're going fast but you're still kind of running within yourself and then it's only really a case of digging really deep the last few laps where it's like you know in cross country you could be hit with a monster of a hill in the first k and your legs are you know that's in your legs then for the whole race and it is very much more kind of a grinding it out and it's probably slightly less tactical as well um most of the time anyway um because most of the time it's just hard from the gun and there's no sort of kind of looking at people now our national championships was actually quite slow from the gun um till about 5k it was quite slow so it was tactical in that in that sense but um no, generally, like cross country is really just it's it's just a much more honest race. It's just you know out from the gun, everybody's everybody's going hard for as long as they can, and it's it's you know quite literally like survival of the fittest that way. You mentioned there the, the recent national championship. So you finished second in the senior men's race, just uh, so just three seconds behind the winner. But you also won the took gold in the under twenty three men's race, and that followed on from a couple of weeks earlier, where at the at the at the um, at the autumn international cross-country at Everettstown, you won gold there. So are you happy with your form hidden into this weekend? And what are your expectations? Yeah, I've, I'm, yeah, to be honest, I'm delighted with my form. I think, um, I think I'm probably getting a little bit more used to it now, but like, it, it really has been a, a, a crazy few months in the way that I think, I think my fitness have developed, has developed. I mean, obviously, you know, it's all well and good saying that when you're, you know when you're training well it obviously means more in terms of the races but like for those kind of months there like September and October I was kind of taking myself by surprise as to how well I was training I think I've kind of adapted to that now and it's the new kind of normal for me in terms of what splits I'd be looking to hit for um you know different different zones and stuff like that but um yeah like the race have gone well so like I ran intervarsity cross was my first race of the year that was back in like September um and I won that. That went well. I ran pretty strong that day. And then, then I had the autumn open that you alluded to. And I won that day as well. And I knew I was in, I was in good form. And then a week before the national cross as well, we had a our university road relays. So it's um I was doing the three mile leg for ECD, and um we won that quite comfortably. So everything was going really well. And then I suppose like for nationals, it's kind of hard for me to. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, like I was disappointed. Like I was disappointed I didn't win it because I think like I was in the shape to win it but you know I you know I said earlier about like the kind of reoccurring injury I had running cross country other years I mean like I'm so much more closer to where I want to be now than I was two years ago like two years ago I won the junior race by like seven seconds or so but I was like I was maxed out and I remember you know finished the race got my medal or whatever and I was watching the senior men's race straight after it and I really was looking at it thinking these guys are you know miles ahead of me especially over cross um, and that day was kind of like demoralizing. Then, like, went to the European cross country championships in Lisbon in the junior race and came twelfth, missed out on a team medal. Like overall, it just wasn't really going well. So I suppose like that's why when I am disappointed with second, 
I do if I do take a step back, it is very much like okay, I've come on so much in the last two years and I have gone to a new level. Um, and I think the encouraging the encouraging and frustrating thing about the race as well was I think it was kind of a tactical error that that really got me. Um, like I made a move kind of with about probably about five or six hundred to go. Um, in the Nationals, uh, so two of us had broken away, myself and uh, Hiko Tanosa, and I kind of made a move with like 600 to go, because I thought I felt comfortable, and I thought I could kind of push it on, but like eventually, or you know, it ended up being that I kind of showed my hand too early, and then he he stayed with me and, and kicked by me with 200 to go, so I mean, initially I was so disappointed, because I was like, I've, I've messed this up for myself or whatever, but then I suppose in hindsight, the fact that I got to 9,300 metres into a 10k cross-country race, feeling comfortable enough and confident enough to to kick on I think that bodes well because like you know it, it is different at the national championships because people know each other very well and you're kind of looking looking at each other and stuff whereas I mean like it's the the under 20 like the Europeans now next week are essentially guaranteed to go out hard and just be hard from the gun so I think the fact that like I was able to go with with Hiko Tanosa who's a you know he's a 28 flat 10k guy on the track like he's really he's really strong and like I mean his track credentials are really as good as anybody that I'm going to race in the under 23 race anyway um so I think the fact that I was able to kind of match him for as long as I did and you know on another day maybe have even beaten him I think it definitely fills me with confidence so like for Sunday really I just I'm not gonna yeah like I'm gonna just go out with it like I'm just gonna go out in the top group um I would imagine like for the first couple of laps there'll be you know kind of 10 10 to 15 lads there um Hopefully I'll get around, you know, the first two or three K pretty unscathed, having done as little work as possible. But then yeah, when it comes to it, I actually I really think I can be, you know, I, I I'm I'm definitely fighting for a medal, like without without a doubt. Um I think it'd be pretty cowardly to do anything anything else other than put myself in that position. Um and I think like I'm you know, I'm confident from from my training that I can that I can hang on for a long time. And that's you know, that's a lot of it. It could it could get to a stage where you know, like it's an AK race, so like I mean, five and a half K into the race, there could be six lads there, and if you can just hold on and hold on, it could get to a K to go, and there's three of you have pulled away, and then it's like worst case scenario, you could have a bronze medal. You know what I mean? Things like that. So what I really want to just do the next day is get in amongst it early on and just and just stay there for as long as I can. And I think like you know, obviously have home soil advantage as well, which is a big deal. Like um, like obviously other countries would have got like you know videos and stuff of the course, but like nothing really beats having race on it before and knowing the place. Like I remember last year or in two years ago when we went to Lisbon um for the Europeans, like we were told it's it's a what we were told like it's a nice dry course with a few hills. And it was honestly it was on the side of a mountain. Like it was crazy. And even things like that can kind of mess you because you get there and you think you've kind of prepared for something completely different in your head. And then you get there and you're like, oh God, I really need to adapt now. And like obviously I know Absalon so well where the race is on, like I've raced there loads of times and I've been out there training a couple times this year already and I'm going out there again tomorrow um, to kind of do my last workout on it before the race and stuff. So I think like things like that and then obviously like the home crowd advantage and things like that as well. I think that's like, it's definitely worth something to you because, you know, um, like Ireland's a big, has a big cross-country following within the sport anyway because of, you know, previous successes with like, you know, at least like, um, like John Tracy and Katrina McKernan and stuff. And like, like a country that's probably quite comparable to that is Holland and like we were in Tilburg for the European Championships in 2018 I mean the home support there was crazy like there was and you know they made it fairly well known like they weren't shouting for you like they were shouting for the Dutch guy that was next to you you know what I mean so I think 
things like that can really help you. Like, and if uh, if you know, if you can use the whole the home advantage to you know to help me and you know have to obviously have the home support on my side and think I I think it actually could really be a, a really special day. And like we have a strong team as well. Um, like I think two years ago when the Irish team went to the Irish under twenty three team went to Lisbon. Um, because like at the at our national championships, the only twenty threes and the seniors obviously ran together, and like I was second, uh, Keelan Carreho was sixth, and Thomas McStay was eighth this year. So like that's you know three guys in the top eight that are all under twenty threes, and then we also have Michal Power, um, who is on scholarship in America. He's coming home for the race, um, and like he was he ran really well over there in the American collegiate system. So I think we're strong because, um, like that's a and uh, actually as well like we have another guy who came tenth. And then our other guy was 16. So, like, our, all six lads are, were, you know, high up in national seniors or whatever. Whereas, I think a couple of years ago, you had guys, I can't remember the exact places, but they definitely weren't as high as high as that. And that team ended up coming, like, fifth. So, I mean, yeah, like, if the stars align, it could be a, a really special day, both individually and for the team. You're really after whetting the appetite for, for, for the action now. And, and, and final question, there, and you mentioned there that home side advantage to have that familiarity in the run up to the to the to the European cross country. You can sleep in your own bed. You don't have to travel. You don't have to go to airports to to go to Sardinia or, or go to forever that the Europeans have been on over the last couple of years. How how much of an advantage is that too? The fact that you you know the course so well, like you said there, you're able to sleep in your own bed. You're you don't have to travel. Like that must all be kind of you hope playing into your hands. I definitely think it does, yeah, honestly, because it's, um, yeah, I mean, like, that's, I suppose the, the example of going over to Lisbon is probably the best one I can use, and I just remember thinking to the lads after, it's like, like, this was our last year as juniors, we could have got a team medal, like, in hindsight, why didn't we come here for a week in October or something, you know what I mean, and train on the course, get to know the course, even things like, you know, like, what, what section of, because, uh, I mean, you obviously, like, the, the athletes that are coming over, like, they will see the course the day before and things like that, but in terms of just knowing, like, you know, what side of the hill to run up because it stays the driest or where it's not, where the gradient isn't as steep and all these type of things, I mean, like, they might only be worth half a percent each, but if they all come together, they can make a big difference. And I think, I think it would make a huge difference because, like, you know, as you said, like, I know Abstown very well now and, like, like the autumn open race that I won this year, it was on in Abstown. Um, I ran, ran really well there. Um, and obviously I've had like, like I've won a couple of junior national titles on it and stuff like that. So I definitely think, yeah. And uh, you said about the travel as well, like that's definitely the case as well. I mean, was it in 2017, we raced in Samarin in, in Slovakia and like, even just things like, like climbing and stuff like that was a, a nightmare from start to finish. Like we got there and it was, it was a really hard place to get there. I think we had to get two flights to get to Bratislava and then we had like a two hour bus and then like the, nobody liked the food out there and our race was at like nine o'clock in the morning and like minus six degrees Celsius, just all these little things really ended up like, I remember finishing that race and thinking, geez, like that race is just coming on as if, as if it never really happened. Whereas, yeah, you say like we're going up, so we're going into the team camp on Friday morning um, in the Clayton Hotel at the airport. Um, yeah, like obviously the whole team would be together. Um, and like even just things like I've stayed, I've stayed in that, by pure chance I've stayed in the Clayton Hotel before like a lot of like national championships and stuff like that so there definitely is a much more kind of I suppose overriding team of kind of like familiarity with the place um, and I think if that's channeled right it can be like definitely a big advantage for, for myself and all, all the Irish athletes so, like. The very best of luck 
this this weekend there. I hope, hope it all works out. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast again. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to the Star Sport Podcast, number one for sport in West Cork. Few counties in Ireland produce as many sporting families as County Cork, and one of the most successful of those families is the Milers. The 42.ie's Fintan O'Toole has teamed up with John and David Myler on a new book called Myler, a family memoir, which documents their successful sporting careers in the GA sphere and the soccer sphere. John, of course, won in All-Ireland with Cork in 1985 before going on to manage his native county and winning a Munster title with them in 2018. His son, David, represented Ireland 26 times in soccer, as well as captaining the team on a number of occasions. He also made hundreds of appearances in England, including 150 for Hull, where he won promotion and played in an FA Cup final with Arsenal. Kieran caught up with Finton to chat about the new book, which will be the perfect stocking filler for the sporting fan in your life. Delighted now to be joined on the podcast by Fintan O'Toole, GA editor of The 42. And we're here to talk about Fintan's new book, Myler, A Family Memoir. Um, first off, congrats on the book, Fintan. What was it like to get the physical copy in your hands? That was great. It's uh, it's kind of a nice buzz right when it kind of comes through the through the letterbox and you finally get it. Like you know yourself, I suppose from the the wrong book you did. It's kind of the, the culmination of a lot of hard work and kind of a bit surreal when you finally finally get it in your hands that it's uh, I suppose that you've reached the finish line. Um, because uh, you know it does it does I suppose it does consume you. You know there is a lot of a lot of work and it goes into it. You know, um, and if we kind of get into it, like, but COVID kind of interrupted a lot of the the kind of stuff in terms of trying to get it done and get the get the project over the line. So yeah. Great to great to get it in my hands. Great to get it out there, and um, just was great to hear people's thoughts now uh, in, in in a few weeks coming up to Christmas. Like it's it's a brilliant book, and and, and for our podcast listeners, it, it's the story of John Myler and and Dave Myler and and their and their journey. Um, where did the idea for this book originate, Fintan? Uh, it originated with Liam Hayes, the publisher. He approached me about it. Um, I'm not 100 sure where he, he the idea he he had come from with him. I suppose the the, the publisher here of books have been doing a, a legend series with different, you know, kind of different GA icons. Obviously, you would have had Dennis Hurley on last year. You know, he would have done Larry Tompkins one with him, and then he branched out into a new series that he called Flesh and Blood. This was kind of the first offering. Uh, so I suppose father and son, you know, in different sports. I suppose that was maybe kind of the the, the interest to it from his point of view. Um, so he would have approached me. I would have met him in February 2020. So I suppose the world was very different, different place then when we kind of agreed to do the book. But uh, then the kind of plans were pretty much derailed, to be honest, when COVID kind of kind of came. Um, originally, we kind of had thought would we bring it out last spring, as in the spring of 2021. But I kind of realised pretty early uh, it just wasn't going to be possible to get it done by then, simply because. Um, I was able to conduct interviews with John in person, I suppose, basically whenever we were out of lockdown over the last 18 months, he was living near me uh, in Cork and Rochestown. And But with David, it was kind of a bit strange. As I said this to a few people, the first time I ever actually met David was the night of the book launch in uh, St. Finbar's uh, GA Club in Cork. Um, people would know maybe that he's living over in Hull in England. He settled there, you know, married with two kids. Um, the original plan had been that I would go over for a week to him and, you know, kind of see his life over there and maybe go to a whole game with him and stuff like that. But just because of, you know, the lockdowns in Ireland, the lockdowns in England, travel restrictions, you know, you know yourself various times over the last 18 months when I thought it might be possible to do it. It just, I realised it wasn't going to be a runner. So uh, we basically did every single interview with David on Zoom, um, which I suppose initially at the start, I was kind of wondering, you know, how is this going to go? Uh, 
but I suppose as he made the point um, through kind of the YouTube and stuff that he does, he's very kind of familiar with kind of video and interviewing. Uh, you know, I suppose a lot of people kind of got into it since COVID happened, you know, the Zoom became kind of a second nature for a lot of people, but he was kind of saying from the start, you know, I think once we can see each other, it would be grand. And in fairness, it did. It did work out better than I thought, you know, it worked out grand in terms of the chats and kind of building up a rapport, but it was a bit strange right actually at the night of the launch to, to kind of finally meet him for the first time, having kind of written his, uh, his life story, you know. And with one of the challenges of this book being the fact that you two stories of you know, the father and son story, and they're, they're two very different sporting stories, obviously, with John very much in the GA background and, and David across England in he, with, he, with his soccer career, to kind of to, to interwind and to wind those two stories together, but to have the book to flow so well as it does. How did you find that? Yeah, like, it's interesting. It was the biggest reason why the idea appealed to me and it turned out to be the biggest challenge, you know? Um, like, I suppose... In terms of an autobiography, I just thought it was something a bit different because it was two voices, because it was a father and a son, and then because they had both excelled in different sports. And they also, you know, so we can get into it maybe, but like they just covered so many different teams um, and different clubs and different sides across the two of them. So I thought, you know, there's going to be kind of an array of characters coming into it. But in terms of the structure, it was right up until the end this summer it was trying to figure out how are we going to do this so it kind of ended up that some chapters uh, are a mix of both their stories together you know for example contrasting their different stories about how they grew up you know John would have grown up in Wexford and then would have gone to boarding school in Gormanstown College and his sporting experience in Gormanstown compared to David's he would have been in Christians then he left Christians at the end of fourth year went to Bruce College in Cork and then dropped out of school uh, in Leavenstock basically to play full-time for Cork City so it was basically how you know the father in the 70s how he was trying to juggle sport in school not much had changed in the 2000s when his son was trying to maybe do the same in Cork you know and then some chapters then are just kind of standalone stuff maybe David recalling some Ireland experiences or John recalling maybe some uh Cork or manager experiences but um I suppose as well, I probably would have thought at the start look I'll be able to get the two of them together in a room and we'll kind of do interviews and we'll play them off each other but as I said, that didn't become possible because David was very rarely home. Um, I think he was home in March 2020 very briefly. And I don't think he was home again for about 18 months. Um, I think John did get over to him once, all right. But, you know, so it just, it ended up kind of being different. And I realized we weren't going to be able to kind of do that, kind of played it off each other. But um, hopefully we kind of managed to get their experiences and kind of compare and contrast them. So there's a, there's a nice flow to it anyway, you know. And one of the great successes of this book, Fintan, is the fact that it, that it flows so well. And there's a very strong father-son bond through it. You know, even the fact like that John went across to so many games, there's almost 90% of games he tried to get across to, in England to, to, to watch David play. So almost to, to, to bring that father-son bond, to bring it through on the pages, like kind of, how did you find that? Yeah, like that was one of the most interesting uh, kind of narratives that kind of developed as we were doing the interviews um you know they constantly would have been referencing each other it was great you know you didn't have to kind of say to them you know when you're talking about this maybe kind of you know pepper the conversation a bit with stuff about your dad whatever they just naturally do that they talk about like David would talk about he might be talking something about an Ireland training session and about being determined you know to, to give it your all and then he'll say but like that was something my dad always drilled into me or you know John's chatting about the Cork hurlers and he's talked about this a lot like in terms of the Munster round robin and the challenge as a manager but he would say I would have drawn on David's experiences and David would kind of coach me about moving from game to game and kind of adopting the right attitude and not dwelling on what happened uh, the previous week so I think they just do that naturally uh, they have a great bond I mean there's only uh, just David and his sister Sarah um, in the family and um, 
you know, uh, John and his wife Stella, like the four of them are very, very tight, uh, kind of a tight crew, uh, the Meyer family. And then obviously that extends to, to John and David. Um, I mean, you mentioned about kind of the matches that he went over to. I do remember thinking one day, you know, before I would have met John, I would say to him or David, I would say, look, here's what we're going to talk about today or tomorrow whenever we were arranging to meet or uh, chatting Zoom. So they'd kind of have an idea. But I said to John, I said, I think there might be an idea just to chat about David's matches and I just I, I kind of had an idea that he would have been at a lot of them, but I just didn't realize it until we got into it. Like, and just some of the best stories, to be honest, I thought were there were that, you know, where he'd talk about um the travel aspect. Like he tells about one of them where basically uh reserve team football, as they both say, is the most unglamorous side of uh, English life. But like when David got to Hull, he was an established first team player. Well, when he was in Sunderland and particularly during his injuries, he was trying to make his way kind of up the, as he said, the food chain of English football. So they talked about one night they were in, it was like a rugby pitch, fairly windswept outside Manchester. Uh, David played for a Sunderland team that won 6-3. He scored a goal, but all the talk before that game, and John remembers it all going over, was this 18-year-old called Paul Pogba playing midfield for United. And they both just said he was unbelievable. I think Michael Keane as well was playing centre-half that night for United. So... There's that kind of stuff. And then, like, you know, John would talk about as well. Uh, there was one game, I think they were playing Everton. Uh, he had flown over, uh, I think it was to Manchester. He'd hire a car. And I think he was driving to Liverpool where he thought the game was on. And David rang him and said, the game's on in Liverpool. We don't know where it's on. And basically, John was trying to, he had this old trustworthy, old stat map that he used to kind of navigate him around England. But he was keeping the phone on, kind of wondering when David would get back to him when the game was on. And uh, next thing he was on the phone to him and he just sees the blue lights flashing in the motorway behind and behind him on the motorway and he's pulled over with the police and he's trying to explain the situation. You know, I'm trying to get to this Sunderland Reserve game. You might leave me off on this one. Um, so I'm waiting for my son to call. I promise I won't get on the phone again. And then the policeman turns to me and goes, well, you're going to have to get on the phone, aren't you? When he rings you and tells you where the match is, you know. And John was like, yeah, that's, that, that's a good point. But he... he uh, he basically found out where the game was anyway, but they both talked about it. It was in a place called Morecambe, which is kind of up the northwest uh, coast of England. And like they said, the weather was just horrific, a Tuesday night in February. But it's kind of a cliche, but they talked about that's the kind of character building stuff that leads to days like playing in the FA Cup final or captain in Ireland and all that, you know. Um, but then John, then he talks about like he got into a really kind of nice routine and a kind of nice rhythm and structure when David was playing for Hull, you know, he'd fly to Manchester or else he'd got the boat uh, over to Hollyhead and he'd drive across England to Hull and it just became second nature to him. And it's just interesting, you know, I suppose we're kind of very proud in the GA, like of like the kind of club ethos and kind of the bond and sometimes maybe a bit too self-congratulatory about it, you know, that this is the most amazing kind of sporting organisation in the world. Like, But like they both were kind of keen to say that English soccer, you know, everyone thinks maybe the money aspect, but they just said Hull had that like for that three or four years and like they both are huge, huge fans of Steve Bruce are kind of the head of that as the manager. And, you know, they mentioned different players like, you know, Tom Huddleston, Jake Livermore, Michael Dawson. And then the Irish crew that would have been there, Paul McShane, Robbie Brady. And like John talks about, you know, you don't realise, he says, you become friends with the parents of the other players. So, you know, he said it'd be at matches and Robbie Brady's dad would be there or Paul McShane's family and he'd be chatting to them. And then by extension, he says, you remember, you know, Ireland games, like he said, he was behind Jane McLean's family when he scored the goal for Ireland against Wales. And he says he remembers being near Shane Long's mother when Shane Long scored against Germany. And just thought it was interesting, maybe something I kind of wouldn't have realised, the the bond that kind of exists um, off the pitch. And uh, like the way they talk about Hull, and obviously David has settled there, like it does kind of remind me a bit of the 
you know, your GA football club community uh, that you might have in West Cork um, or wherever, that, that does seem to be kind of very prevalent, maybe in the north. They, they talk about the north of England is really where they find, I suppose, from their experiences with Sunderland and Hull, people are very, very passionate about it and there is that kind of club atmosphere to it, you know. And when you read the book too, Fintan, you, you really appreciate, like the Moiler, it's, it's a family dynasty. Like it's, it, what they've achieved in both their respective uh, sports is absolutely incredible over, over the years. But I was drawn to at, at the very start is when you first um, became, I suppose, aware of John Moiler, you were back in 2001, you were 15, you were down in your mother's country in Kerry and Kilmoyle. They won their first county, I think, in 30, 31 years. A manager of that Kilmoyle team was, was John Moiler. So... You were almost, you were so aware of him so early on in your life as well. Yeah, this was that was just personally the way it happened. It was a kind of a nice touch, you know. Um, my mother was from Kilmoyle and uh, just kind of would be aware to family members down there. Like my cousins are still involved with the hurling club down there, and my aunt and uncle. Um, just how much it kind of means to them, and it's just very very interesting an aspect of it. Like even if I didn't have this kind of connection, how drawn John Myler is to that club. And in fairness, he talks about this like he has these bonds as well uh, with Ballinhask and Corsi's and Cork. Like he he basically says the thing. He goes, "You win a county with a club, it creates a bond, a trust that can never be broken." And he just thinks if managers, if they don't quite get over the line and win with someone, you just don't quite have that level of connection. But once you win the county, he says you have that for life. And I mean, like to bring it to the modern day, it is kind of interesting. I was chatting to him last weekend. Uh, of course, he's won the Cork County title and Kim Wiley won the Munster quarterfinal. And now they're on opposite sides of the Munster semi-final draw in the club intermediate. So he was kind of talking about that. But yeah, like the, 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 the Kim Wiley thing, he's just he's just completely enthralled with it. The community down there, he just loves it. Um, I don't know, as part of it, like he grew up in Southeast Wexford in a kind of rural community. Does it kind of remind him of that? Um, but he just loves the kind of passion and I suppose the sole focus on hurling. He straight up, he probably says that he probably wouldn't be the best man to take charge of a dual club. You know, he kind of wants the players all the time where hurling is the is the dominant sport. Um, but it is interesting that over the space of two decades, he's been winning counties with Kilmighty. You know, I think we were saying that at the launch, we actually had to, there was already an, an omission when we uh, when the book went to print. He had won six county titles with Kilmoyle, but by the time the book was actually launched and uh, had printed, he had actually won a seventh um, in the interim. You know, so um, you know, I th- and I think that's a fair achievement. You know, I mean, people might look down on counties like that in terms of the competition element of it and all that, but I just think the achievement as a manager. Uh, in adapting with the times, you know, I mean, like he's, he's interesting when he talks about, say he was Kerry manager in 92, 93, and then he was Cork manager in 2018. And he just said like, you know, he went from in one aspect, he was doing everything, kind of the run, the training and um, the, like the hurling coach and obviously the physical work. He talks about um, Kevin Kelly from New System, who would have uh, been kind of familiar to, you know, your your readers. Um, he would have been one of the first he would have been aware who's qualified in SNC. He'd gone to Lockbury University in England. So he gave him, I think, the running program that he had for the team, Kerry team then. And they're doing it in an old equestrian centre during winter. And then it evolved to he said like his job at Cork in 1718, like you're just like it's almost like the your manager's almost like intercounty is almost like a CEO of a small business now, you know, in terms of the amount of people you're operating and you've all these different specialist coaches. But I think it's an achievement um, for the man in terms of how he's adopted and how he's, I'm uh, sorry, adapted and he's kind of evolved in his hurling, uh, hurling coaching over the years. But um, yeah, just to, I suppose, to go back to what you're originally saying, yeah, he, he, it's, it's, as he says, it's the only job that he ever loved and really enjoyed is, is the Kilmoyle one. And it's just very interesting considering, you know, born in Wexford, has lived in Cork, went to school in Gormanstown. He has no real ties other than he worked down there in Tralee for six months 
then got the Kerry job, then fell in with Kerry hurling that way. But it's it's uh, it's just interesting, I suppose, um, the way life kind of takes you in terms of the sport and the, the kind of connections and the friendships you forge, you know? Exactly, John. It's certainly one of the, one of the legends of, of GA. But writing this book and this whole process, Fintan, for you, it's almost a front row seat, obviously, into the Myler, in, in, into the Myler um, family and, and the, the Myler household, but also into two very well-known Irish sporting people, obviously, like we said, John in the GA scene, um, David in, in the soccer side. But what did you find the most yeah. in, interesting part of that? Did you learn something about, about both men that you never knew before or that really caught your eye, even something small, some, some snippet where you didn't realise, oh, John did this or David likes that? What, was the, what were the surprises along this journey for you? Yeah, no, there, there was definitely loads of that. I, to be honest, one of the most kind of surprising interesting things was just the array of well-known people they both have had links to. And like... <laughs> Like the, I remember the one of the days that, that stood out for me was that I met John one day for an interview and basically a lot of it was kind of about St. Finbar's and he basically was just talking about the, playing with Jimmy Barry Murphy, who, you know, is a, is a legendary figure, but I kind of only know him as a hurling manager. I never would have seen him play. And he just talks about what it was like to see him play and how player managers would have taught him. He talks about Donald Grady's father. Jimmy was an unbelievable coach. And basically, he just got it through to John about, you know, your job is basically not to score. Your job in the half-hour line is to get the ball to Jimmy and Jimmy will score. But then the following day, I was talking to David and basically it ended up a discussion about David loves swapping jerseys. And he talks about a time with Hull in January 2017, where they played Man United three times in the space of five weeks. They were playing them in two... Uh, well, you know, was it the Carabao Cup, whatever it was called then, the League Cup semi-finals, uh, first and second leg, and they were playing them in the league. And he says himself, Harry Maguire, who was with Hull at the time, Sam Klukas, uh, came up with a deal that they would divide who would go after which player uh, to get the jerseys. So the three jerseys they wanted were Pogba, Rooney and Zlatan. And I had forgotten that like, Zlatan would have come across Myler's radar and he was saying... I said, how do you do it? Like, how do you get the jerseys off all that? And he referenced the example, which I hadn't uh, known, maybe as a United fan, you might remember this, but it was when Arsenal were playing United and some young Arsenal player asked, or he swapped jerseys with Van Persie at halftime and he got absolutely slammed by the fans after. So he said, you kind of do it quietly. So he said it was the 90th minute of the game. Zlatan was kind of backing. David was playing right back in the game and Zlatan already kind of walked into him preparing for a corner. And... Uh, he was like, oh, sorry, David, you know, sorry, big man. And David turned around to him and said, oh, no worries, no worries. Can I get your jersey after the game? He goes, yes, no problem. So uh, they were in the tunnel afterwards and uh, he got the jersey and he said he always used to bring a Sharpie black marker in his wash bag because he said, you know, jersey is one thing, but actually getting them signed would be another. So he managed to get Zlatan to sign his. And uh, when we were doing the Zoom interviews, like in the wall behind David, he has like about, people might have seen him with some of the interviews he does for, uh, video interviews just for off the ball he's about 10 framed jerseys you know and that's part of the collection but he said Zlatan turned around to him that day and said can I have your jersey and he was like yeah yeah no worries but uh, he said he's never seen any sign in the Milan mansion that um, Myler 26 is up there and he reckons there'd probably be a lot of competition to get on the, the Zlatan wall but uh, Zlatan's on his wall anyway you know but um, yeah so I mean like just people that they would come across that I would have had no idea you know down from like I hadn't realized like John was in school with Ogie Moore and um, obviously a legend of Kerry football they were together in Gormanston College wouldn't have realised that at all to be honest uh, didn't realise how close he is to Liam Griffin for example that again another aspect that wouldn't realise his playing career he won a county senior medal with a Wexford district side in 1977 I think it was in Wexford and Liam Griffin was their manager and basically Griffin has been kind of a mentor to him ever since um, 
And yeah, I just didn't realize that they said to that kind of relationship. And then, yeah, like with the David, you know, it was kind of interesting. We, you know, we'd be talking about it. And then I'd mention something about a match or whatever. And, uh, you know, he talked about David Silva was the best player he'd ever come across. You know, it was just so hard to mark. And kind of, I thought gave a good insight into what it was like um, kind of marking him in midfield. Um, obviously, people kind of would be aware maybe of his friendship with Jordan Henderson. So, you know, I guess I just, I really enjoyed that. Like you were literally jumping from one interview where you're talking about kind of these Jay Hurling characters and then the next day you're talking about something completely different. And uh, that was probably the, one of the most interesting uh, parts of the whole uh, interview process for me anyway, you know. And the beauty of the book, Fintan, is that you you encapsulated it all so, so well. Like the, the book is a, is a credit to you and obviously to, to John and David as well. So would you write a book again, having been through, through the process from start to finish, knowing yeah. what's involved, knowing all that grunt work, that hard work, um, that time locked away from everyone for you just trying to channel your thoughts and, and put the pieces of the jigsaw in, in, into place. If someone came to you and said, Fintan, time for book number two, would you, which way would you, which way would you lean? Yeah, I, th- I think I would. I mean, look, definitely I wouldn't have underestimated beforehand. And like, you know, Karen, from um, something in the water, you know, there, there was a lot more time goes into it than maybe you probably expect when you start out. And it does kind of consume you, you know, probably fortunate, uh, very kind of understanding family. And, uh, you know, obviously kind of with lockdown, probably plenty kind of free time to kill um, in terms of uh, probably able to kind of devote time to the project. But I generally just found it very enjoyable. And that's generally just a testament to the two lads, you know. I've chatted with other people who've kind of ghosted autobiographies. And I think a lot of it comes down to that kind of how willing the people are to engage with it. Um, are they kind of interested in the project first day? Um, and, you know, both the lads were absolutely brilliant on that counts. And then also, look, it was just, you go to interview John and you might be only planning on doing a certain section and then you kind of, you know, an hour would pass by and he's just telling you these great stories. And like I said, it's just the breadth of his career. You know, he's talking about playing a Hogan Cup final um, against St. Charlotte's in the 70s. And then he's talking about what it was like for that Cork Hurling semi-final against Limerick. Um, and as well as that, I think the other thing about them, which I found interesting was they, you know, they don't sugarcoat it. Like, you know, they talk about the disappointment. Like... <laughs> It was interesting in 2017, in October, in the same month, John became Cork Hurling manager and David, uh, Captain Berlin, to beat Wales within 10 days of each other. Two pretty landmark moments, you know. But then on the exact same day, uh, July 31st, 2019, um, David's contract was terminated kind of by mutual consent with Reading. He then retired him a, a day later. But on that same day, John left as Cork Hurling manager. And like they talk about the great times they've had together and all that, but you know, they're both straight up, like they both say respectively. David says he doesn't think he'll ever properly get over early losing to Denmark because that was, they all, like they're bringing to talk about chances. You know, you only get so many chances in life and you got to take the opportunities. But he says, I don't think I'll get over that disappointment. That was my chance to play in the World Cup. And he really wanted to get there for Seamus Coleman. He's very, very good friends with him and he wanted him to be there. And I think John kind of says he's not sure he'll get over Cork's defeat to Limerick in the 2018 semi-final, you know, when he was so close to getting to a final um, as manager. So, you know, there's kind of a lot of, a lot of kind of joy and kind of upbeat stuff in the book in terms of uh, sporting experiences and they're both very, very grateful, but they're both very, very competitive guys and uh, I guess the disappointments um, kind of do uh, do linger with them as well. But um, yeah, really, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I think that's the main thing. You probably know yourself, Karen, you know, when you, co- when you come out from writing it, like, you know, I think if you can look back and say you kind of enjoyed, uh, obviously, look, it's, it, it, there is a lot of work goes into it, like, but I think if you can look back and say you enjoyed the experience, um, that, that, that's a good enough thing to, to reflect on. I 100% agree, Fintan. And here it is again, uh, Fintan's book, Myler, a family memoir. Coming up to Christmas, this is the ideal sporting gift. It's one of the best sport books that's out in the Irish market this year. So if you're looking for that, 
for that perfect sporting gift for your for your better half or even for yourself treat yourself this christmas to this book like you, you won't be disappointed um fitness done a terrific job um capturing the essence of john myler and david myler congrats on on the book Fenton. and also congrats on your recent mcnamee award you've been you must have a trophy cabinet at home now because you're really um stocking up the accolades um congrats again that that was a nice honor for you on a personal level yeah it was really really nice yeah it was kind of a bit unexpected uh it was kind of piece of road last year with my grandfather the Kilmiley, Kerry Harlan link before Kerry were playing in the Joe McDonough Cup final. Um, so yeah, just was something kind of different. You know, I suppose a lot of time where in this job, you know, you're kind of interviewing other people and you're kind of at press conferences and cover matches and some of that. So it was just a different piece of it. And yeah, really, really kind of humbled and, and, and honoured by it, you know. Um, so it was a nice thing to hear a couple of weeks ago. A well-deserved honour. And congrats again in the book and best luck for, for, the, for the book over the Christmas period. Brilliant stuff, Kieran. Thanks a million. For listening to the Star Sport Podcast, number one for sport in West Cork. Okay, Kieran, we won't dwell too much longer on this week's podcast because, as we mentioned, Storm Barra is raging outside our windows right now. But obviously, there's the important matter of looking ahead to this Thursday's Southern Star Sports section. So, give us a sneak preview of what we can expect. By the time Storm Barra clears, it'll, it'll be Thursday, so people will want their daily dose of Star Sport and its other action-packed um, star on the way on Thursday. So I'm going to lead with the Barra Miners this year. They had a fantastic win against Bell and Colleague in the, in the Rebel Oak Under-18 Premier 1 Minor Football Final on, on Saturday. Uh, last gasp winner, 200 time points, got Barra over the line, so a report and reaction from that. Um, irresistible Ivalera, or Irresistible Ivalera is, is the headline as the Muskerry team who won the County Junior A Football Championship in, October, in August are now County Intermediate A Football Champions and going up to Premier Intermediate. So well done to them. And we've full report and reaction from that as well. The Carberry AGM um, was held last Friday night and there was a um, four or five officer changes, including David White is the new Carberry Vice Chairman, while Aidan O'Rourke is the new Chairman. So we've all the news and reaction from the Carberry GA AGM. The Carberry Under-21 A Hurling Championship is going at pace as well. We've match reports from that. Also, Ball Cumming, that's road bowling, held their AGM lately. So we have news of that and the strategic three-year strategic plan that Ball Cumming and road bowling are putting in place and also, we have a very good interview with Hannah Sexton. She's a very talented road bowler from Tim League. She won a West Cork Sports Star Monthly Award lately. And while I met her at the awards, she told me, Jack, that she won two of her big titles in the last couple of months while playing with a cruciate tear. She tore her cruciate while playing for the Cork Intermediate Camogie team back in the end of May in a league game against Galway. Um, she didn't need an operation, so she played on in road bowling with her with her left leg strapped. And she won an under-18 All-Ireland and a Munster um, Intermediate crown. And now she's going up senior. So she's she's won a, one hell of a, a sports star. So there's that and a lot, lot more. And finally, sorry, Ger McCarthy outlines 10 sports books, either for you or the loved one in your life, that are worth getting this Christmas. So if you're looking for a last-minute Christmas stocking filler, check out the star for 10 really quality sports books. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Always look forward to reading Jurors Sportsbook Review of the Year. And if you can't make it to the shop for whatever reason, maybe there's a, a tree blocking your passage into Skibbereen and you can't get down to buy your copy to start. Don't fret. Don't worry. You can buy one online. Just go to www.southernstar.ie forward slash e-paper and read the Southern Star on your computer, tablet or smartphone for less than two euro per week. But if there is a tree down and it's blocking the road, maybe contact um, the local services and they'll come and help you. Don't feel that you have to 
by the Southern Star Online and remain isolated for the rest of the week. That just wouldn't be an ideal situation for anyone. But anyway, that's enough rambling for me. Time is against us because Kieran's power is going to get knocked off any moment now. Thanks for listening to the Star Sport Podcast. We'll be back on Tuesday. If you enjoy these shows, please make sure to rate, review and subscribe to the Southern Star Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Slán Tommel and breathe.